and welcome to this week's edition of the Lashing Out Podcast and the Sports Now Network. He's Kevin Quigley. I'm Jared Pugar. Kevin, I don't know if you can smell it from where you're at in Virginia, but in central Pennsylvania, the smell of pads are affluent throughout the community. Yes, basketball things are happening at Penn State, and we'll get to that later. But let's be real. This is the Lashing Out Podcast. we got to talk some football. And, man, we can talk about real football things this week. Yeah, unfortunately, I can't smell pads from where I'm at. Richmond's probably, I think it's a top 10 pollen city in the U.S. Give it a couple uh, the, weeks until it's they slowly, smell really bad. It's slowly turning yellow as we speak. Um, yeah, the speculation's over. We've been talking about leadership. We've been talking about quarterbacks. We've been talking about all of this stuff, and it's all been hypothetical. Now they're actually on the field. We actually get to hear James Franklin talk about leadership. We get to hear Yursich talk about the quarterbacks. Who's going to be the wide receiver one? And we're starting to get those answers. And really, the coaches are starting to get those answers, too. Yeah, and that's big because this is a big year uh, for Penn State. And this is a big spring. And the reason why is they've got to carry momentum from winning the Rose Bowl into the spring and into the fall. But it's Drew Aller's team now. It's Nick Singleton and Catron Allen's team now. So gone are those leaders like Parker Washington, like Sean Clifford, like P.J. Mustafer. Guys like that. Are, are no longer with the program. And for good reason, they had their day on Friday with um, with Pro Day. And we can talk about that a little later too. But now it's the young guy's turn to step up. And this is a young, talented team. And I'm excited to see them play. We we get a lot of access to Penn State this spring uh, for, for good reason. I mean, we get to talk to Franklin every Tuesday uh, where it would typically be just one or two players. Instead, we get about four or five players Plus, the, plus a core, uh, coach, which is great. Last week, we talked to Mike Yurcich. This week, we get Manny Diaz. So having that, you know, that type of availability and that type of access is huge. And and especially a guy like Yurcich to lead it off, because number one, he doesn't like talking to the media. Let's be real. Um, and that's why I think he's perfectly content being an offensive coordinator right now. I don't think that he's ever going to be a guy that loves to talk to the media, whatever. He's more of a guy you'd see at a bar, shoot the shit, and over a couple drinks and, and some wings, and that would be his element, right? But the biggest thing to take away now is not only are they looking for leaders to step up, but they're looking at some position competition and position battles that are going to be huge down the road. You know, obviously the running back situation is 1A, 1B. Quarterback, all three of them are going to get reps. That's Aller. Bo Perbola, Jackson Smollett. Okay. But wide receiver is where they lost their top two guys. They lost Mitchell Tinsley. They lost Parker Washington. So now can Key Andre Lambert-Smith be the number one guy? And that's what they need him to be, and that's what he wants to be, you know, talking with him um, earlier last week. So they are in prime situation to, to step up, be the leaders on and off the field, but also find the guy at wide receiver. Yeah, and you mentioned the player access. I'm sure it helps for NIL purposes too. So if you have media access, you get additional exposure. So that's a whole other thing too, which is great for them. Um, I think it is important that Keandre Lambert-Smith and Zaki Wheatley were the two players made available last week. Those are two guys that we have question marks about. Are they going to step up? Are they going to be ready for prime time? Zaki Wheatley's got to step in for Jair Brown. I mean, are there any bigger shoes to fill? I mean, PJ Mustafer's shoes are probably physically bigger than – 
Jair Brown's, but Jair Brown's leadership on the back end of of the defense last year is unquestioned. So there's a big, massive void there. Looks like Zakiwi Lee is going to be that guy to do it. And the fact that he's available for media day on day one of practice spring ball, I think it speaks volumes to that. The coaches feel comfortable with them. There's questions. There were questions about that. And uh, I think it's a good boat of confidence that he's available on day one. And then Keandre Lambert Smith, who's going to be wide receiver one. It's looking like it's going to be KLS, but it's kind of a surprise. I mean, they bring in Malik McLean. They bring in Dante Cephas from uh, Akron, right? Akron. And, uh, it was like, are they going to step up and they, are they going to be wide receiver one or is Keandre Lambert Smith going to take that position by the reins? And it seems like the way the coaches are talking that it's kind of his job to lose. I mean, he still has to go out and earn it, but he's kind of that guy who's going to have that half step above everybody coming into practice. And it seems like that that's going to be the case. And then it was kind of surprising. It seems like also Trey Wallace is in competition for wide receiver one, but it seems like he's going to be wide receiver two. And if those two guys are our top two wide receivers, and then you are, then you do have McLean and Cephas coming in off the bench at wide receiver three and four. I don't, you know, I, I think they're in a great position. It's kind of interest, maybe not the way I thought it was potentially going to shape out, how it's shaping out early this spring, but we'll see how we go from there. And then in the quarterback room, like you talked about, they're all getting reps. I don't know if you saw the video, Drew Aller and um, Bo Perbulo were throwing deep, deep balls to like the, I guess the front right, if you're going with the direction of the uh, mm-hmm. of the offensive front right cone or pylon, and it was like 45, 50 yards. Did you see the ease? If you haven't seen this video, you got to go watch it. The ease, I saw it in person, so yes. It's the ease at which Drew Aller was flicking his wrist, and it was, I mean, just, it seemed like every ball was on target. Bo Prabula, he's a little bit of a smaller guy, probably doesn't have as strong of an arm, which I learned from Mike Yersich. Means he lacks core strength and the ability to release the hips, I guess, as Dak Prescott would do. Um, but the ease at which Drew Aller flicked that ball 50 yards, it was like, oh boy, we could be in for a good one. Yeah, and then once I kind of get them on the field at the same time, which hasn't historically been a great thing for Penn State, but at the same time, it gives them a couple different options. Um, hey, who, who knows? Uh, you mentioned Zaki Wheatley. He's in a he's follows in a long line of safeties that have played very very well at Penn State and gone on to what it's expected to be great NFL careers. I mean, you look at Jaquan Brisker a few years two years ago, he played for the Bears and was the Bears' best player, not named Justin Fields. Um, now Jair Brown, um, I think he's going to step in be a first late first early second round, uh, pick. And I think he'll he's expected to have an impact. Then you can look at you know even further ahead or further back like Marcus Allen, who's been with the Steelers for quite some time, albeit in multiple multiple different roles, but played safety at, at Penn State. So and Nick Scott won a Super Bowl with the Rams. That's right. So so the secondary at Penn State is a, is a very very solid group, um, a very very solid historically of late. So that's one of those things where I'm I'm excited to see what he can do. I mean, Keaton Ellis is still in the fold. You've got Johnny Dixon at corner. Um, you got Storm Duck at, at corner as well. So there's a lot that can that can be had in that secondary, and it's and it's great because they have depth, depth, and not just depth, but quality depth. And I think that's huge when you look at the grand scheme of things. And Carter looks like a freak at once more. So defensively, 
I'm very interested to see what uh, what Manny Diaz has to say this week, but it'll be fun to to really see what's making that defense click, uh, and 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 see what's next for the Penn State defense because the Penn State defense was was pretty damn good outside of one start last year, one game last year. Yeah, and we'll see we'll see where the defensive line shakes up after losing Mustafer, uh, a couple others there too. But I think they're going to be okay once they fill out figure out Mustafer's role. Um, I was really excited to hear, uh, I forget, I think it was James Franklin talking about Storm Duck. Mm-hmm. Uh, it sounds like he's absolutely fitting in perfectly with the defense. Uh, I think it was James Franklin talking about how he was helping. He ended up having like help coverage in the flat. And James Franklin was like, if it wasn't practice and it was against another team, would I lay the dude out? But he knows that at practice, he's not going to put those unnecessary hits on players, on his own teammates. So, I think the coaches are really liking what they're seeing there. So on the other side of Johnny Dick- Dixon and uh, Kalen King, uh, it sounds like they have a really good third cornerback option. So it sounds like I mean, you got three starting cornerbacks like we did last year, but when Joey Porter Jr. was healthy, you keep those guys fresh and really should help the defense out in the fourth quarter. So I really like what I'm hearing so far. I wish I could actually make it to a practice. Unlike you, unlike you I can't do that very easily. So you're going to have to keep filling me in. That's what I'm here for, Kevin. But you mentioned a little bit of sadness, so I think it's a perfect time to segue into this first break, talk about some Penn State basketball when we come back on Lashing Out Podcast on the Mindy Sports Now Network. Welcome back to the second segment of the Lashing Out podcast on the Nittany Sports Now Network. Peace, Kevin. I'm Jared, and I'm sorry that it took me a little longer to spit that out. Uh, while we were at break, Kevin was singing to me, and if you ever have that opportunity for Kevin to sing to you, um, don't. But he's singing Bye Bye Bye, and that's what Micah Shrewsbury did. He's off to Notre Dame with Fighting Irish. Can't bet against Irish in the month of March. But listen, Penn State basketball is relevant. Penn State coaching searches are relevant now. Um, good for Michael Shrewsbury. I think, honestly, I think if this job, if it wasn't this year, Shrewsbury doesn't go. I think if, if this is a perfect opportunity, perfect situation, Mike Bray, I think he mailed it in, <laughs> in November when he retired. Because um, that team should have been better than they, what they were at Notre Dame. But, again, good for them. He's off to bigger and better things with Notre Dame. They And the university is offered, is rumored to be offered um, financial packages. NIDL is still a struggle for basketball. So I'm sure there is a little bit of a hang up there, but you can't, can't bet against going against uh, going a guy going home. He's from Indiana, you know, back home again in Indiana is the state state song. There's a lot of cool things, but you know, when, when that's where his career got started, um, you know, such as life, yeah. right? I, and let's let me chime in here. I'm not going to fault Shrewsbury for going home. Seven year, potentially, I think as much as four point two million dollar contract. If Penn State offered three and a half million, I probably the correct amount for Michael Shrewsbury. He's going on his third year of a head coach. He has coached sixty eight games at the college level, and Notre Dame. I think Notre Dame probably outpaid for Michael Shrewsbury. I 
$4.2 million. Let's look at the salaries of college basketball coaches. Uh, here are, let's go, let's go, let's just start at the top. John Calipari, he's not in that category. Bill Self, Tom Izzo, Rick Barnes, Bruce Pearl, Tony Bennett, Brad Underwood. Those are the college basketball coaches that make more than $4.2 million a year. Who makes $4.2 million a year? Bob Huggins at West Virginia. You think Mike Micah Shrewsbury's worth Bob Huggins' money? Maybe because he's an up-and-comer, but I if Penn State made a legitimate offer at let's say three to three and a half million, I I don't see the reason to pay him more, especially when he has the opportunity to go home. So not gonna fault him. There's 10 guys in the country, 12 coach, 10 or 12 coaches in the country that make greater than four million dollars a year. I don't know if Micah Shrewsbury is a top 10 college basketball coach at this point in time. Could he be in three years? Of course. And maybe that's what Penn State was going for. Three, four years at three and a half. You keep this thing going, we'll up you up. But back to Notre Dame swooped in, made him an offer that he can't resist. Good luck to you. What hurts the most about this is Penn State basketball was good again. Yeah, they were 500 in the Big Ten. Yeah, they had Jalen Pickett. But they won a game in the NCAA tournament handedly. They were just a couple possessions away from making a run again. And and it sucks because Penn State they go they go in these spurts and and Michael Shrewsbury proved that you can win at Penn State you can leave one in two years and that's what's most impressive about Michael Shrewsbury right last year struggled but he inherited a roster or lack thereof put Pete Stitt together and they were still competitive Penn State basketball kept you on the edge of your seat last year because you weren't sure what they were going to do. Were they, it was, were they going to be in a close game? Were they going to win? Were they going to pull it out? You just didn't know. Now they were winning those games. They, was, they were winning those games that were they were expecting to lose. But it's just the nature of the business now. And, and it sucks because if he stays, they can build. But now who is Penn State going to get? Right? If, if there's financial backing there with, where they're putting somebody in the three and the four million dollar range, that's great, and hopefully that's sustainable for the program because Penn State's basketball program is profitable, even though, you know, you look at the Bryce Jordan Center and you don't really see a lot of, you know, <laughs> filled up seats more often than not. But when it is packed there, when there are people there, it's a fun place to be. You know, when they made the NIT run, that place was packed, and it was it was a great atmosphere, not just built for Kenny Chesney concerts, but – it was it was or wrestling matches, but it was still a very solid atmosphere. But who do you get now? Because the guys that you want to talk to are still probably coaching, and I think that that leads me into Dusty May for Florida Atlantic, and that's a tough one because there's a CBS report out or a CBS article out. I was just reading it before we went live. You know he he when he accepted his job at Florida Atlantic in 2018, he. Signed his contract sight unseen. He did not see the facilities. He did not see the arena. He did not see the weight room. He signed his contract and then saw that and was like, oh, shit. And now he's got his team in the Final Four with a very good chance to to win the national championship, which is something unheard of from Florida Atlantic. Um, you know, Florida Atlantic, I think, was was pretty far off the map for a lot of places until Lane Kiffin was there just a couple of years ago for football. Puts the Owls back on the map. And, 
you know, it was a great hire by them for football. I know that's, you know, not quite basketball, but I, I do think there is value in, in that. But but now it's can they get him away from a great situation at FAU? And is money going to talk? I'm not I'm not so sure. I will say I, I did know about FAU. My freshman year of college, I played water polo down in a tiny school in Florida. And FAU, every time we played them like three or four times in the year. And every time it was an absolute route. So FAU has been on my radar there for a while. Um, Dusty May is definitely my choice. Uh, he's my preferred candidate. Uh, some good things I've heard about him and f- just from other coaches. I think it was on the Dan Patrick show. They were talking about this this morning. And like FAU plays a total team game. And that's what Penn State needs. Like Penn State's not going to be in the one and done business. They're not going to be in the two and done business. They are going to they are going to be recruiting guys who are going to be in college basketball for three to four years. It seems like Dusty Bay knows how to build a roster and knows how to build a locker room where those guys play cohesive as a unit. They are the most. They are a total team game, and that's what you're going to need at Penn State. That's the part of Dusty Bay I like. You talked about money. I think he makes five hundred grand at FAU. If he gets yeah. offered three to three and a half million, it's really hard. I don't know about you, but if my salary, if I got offered a salary six to seven times what I had and I'm doing the same job and it only required me a little bit of a move, I think I would have a hard time saying no. Um, so that's where I'm at with that. But like you said, he's in the final four. Penn State's going to have to wait probably until Sunday, if not Tuesday, to talk to him. So. That leads us to our next candidate, which is Mike Rhodes, uh, VCU head coach. Uh, I r- rumor, I don't know how true it is. They were talking like a four by four contract for him. Uh, he's a Pennsylvania kid or Pennsylvania guy at this point in time. Uh, his dad was a Pennsylvania senator. He's from Schuylkill County, played basketball at Lebanon County, or um, so, or excuse me, Lebanon Valley, and he's been a head coach really since 2014 at the D1 level. And then he was at Randolph-Macon, which is about 10 minutes up the road from me, a little D3 school. So a lot of head coaching experience. I don't think you're going to go wrong with either of them. Uh, Dusty May seems to be, is probably my preferred candidate based off of what I know. And I can't say I'm well-versed in the college basketball coaching world um, or any coaching world at that, but I don't think they'll go wrong with either of them. But just based off of what Dusty May has built at FAU, I think I think that's where I want to go. And he's he is slightly less experienced. He's only been I think FAU is his first head coaching job, and he's only been there since 2018. But that means he has six seasons under his belt, so or five seasons under his belt, going into his sixth year next year. So either one's good. But I think my eggs are if I had to put my eggs in a basket, I would prefer Dusty May. Yeah, I mean he's the hot choice, right? Can can that be sustainable? I'm not sure. But the biggest thing though. Is it in this day and age where you have players that I don't think loyalty exists the way that it used to in college athletics, which is fine. I get that. Um, That's just kind of the way that the business is right now. And yes, college athletics is a big business. We see that every Saturday, every, well, essentially since the the beginning of March Madness, right? Um, How big of a business it actually is. But my thing is, Obviously, Dusty May is the hot choice. The best thing about him is he kept that team together when so many of those players, and they're still getting uh, attempted to get poached um, from uh, bigger name schools every year. 
And that's the tough thing with mid-major teams, right? Like them, like San Diego State. If you're good, people are going to come find you and try to get you to come play for them. You know, Penn State's capable of doing that. Can they do that for a coach? But you've got May and you've got Rhodes, who has been kind of the leader in the clubhouse for now because they have to put a – they have to get their roster together. The port, there are, I mean, there are a 1,000 people in the, in the portal right now. There, everybody on the roster left at Penn State is a freshman. So the Evan, eight of the Evan, top ten, yeah, Evan, Evan the, yeah, he's gone. Uh, he's in the portal. So you got to kind of sure that up. And and my guy, if I'm Penn State, is a guy that's on the staff already, and it's Adam Fisher. Promote from within. The guys that played there for Shrewsbury loved him. The guys that were on that team loved him. You create that sense of atmosphere. Hopefully you can retain some of that staff, but then, you know, it's a lot less of a rebuild than just a, a coach coming in, revamping, getting different guys in there. You can kind of at least play that game, but that's, that's my guy. And I, I think those are the top three. Obviously Rodney Terry at Texas was, a, was a, a pick I wanted them to go after, but Texas just now lost. Over you mean Gus Spring? Yeah. That's right. Sorry. Sorry. About that. Sorry. But yes, and and it's just one of those situations. But at the same time, hey, now it's now you got to put up or shut up. And I don't know that Penn State can play the long game here. They might have to make a decision pretty soon. Yeah, if yeah, I feel like um, Adam Fisher's linked to the Temple job. Um, I feel like Temple would probably be a better first place to become a D one basketball coach. Uh, so that's probably my concern with Fisher. But like you said, yeah, they can't. If they wait a week, it's going to be down to May and Rhodes. If you hire today or tomorrow, it's between Rhodes and Fisher. So there's not really any other big openings open in the D1 level. I think what Providence is full, Georgetown's done, Notre Dame's done, Texas is done. Like any college, any program that had an open, St. John's is done. Any program that potentially had an opening is full. So Penn State's kind of bidding against themselves here, luckily, at the in the power five level. So yeah, you just don't want to string along your current coach. And if you don't hire Fisher, does Kanye Clary leave? Does Kevin Jai leave? And then those were him and them and uh, Evan Mahaffey, Mahaffey uh, were the only three scholarship players left. So if those two guys leave and you've got a brand new coach with a bunch of walk-ons and transfer portal kids, uh, next year's basketball season could be, uh, could get ugly. And I, yeah, I think that's what that's definitely like what you saw with Michael Shrewsbury. Like, I know he left, but man, it was still a gut punch because it just feels like I just hope it's not another twenty years before it's another tournament win. Right, and that's the thing. Like that, what's great about that is that he showed that you can Penn, that Penn State basketball it can be relevant, uh, and just special when it's relevant. Now it's it's just maintaining that relevancy because it, much like Notre Dame. It can get hidden behind football, behind wrestling, behind hockey. So that's tough. And it, and at Notre Dame, it's getting hidden behind football, hockey, women's basketball. And Penn State, they don't really have to worry about that. But it's the same thing. You just got to be cognizant of that, and you hope that Penn State can go in there and, and make the right call. And, and if that's Fisher, if that's May, if that's Rhodes, if that's whoever, you know, if they called me up, maybe I would accept that job. I don't know. But you just got to do what's best for the program moving forward. Um, and they have a couple of good options, if there are even options. Hell, at this point, we might not, we 
we might be so totally off that Twitter is telling us wrong information. Yeah, who knows? But I'm tired of talking sadness. And maybe that is that's a terrible that might be a terrible segue for what we're gonna talk about. Um we could slide can, on over to the third segment. That's right, we're gonna slide right right on over. And it's gonna be a little mixture of anger and comedy and a little bit of different uh different everything on the third and final segment of the Lashing Out Podcast when we come back after this week break. segment of the Lashing Out Podcast and the Sports Network. Again, he's Kevin. I'm Jared. And Penn State hockey played one hell of a weekend of, of hockey um in the in the Frozen Four tournament. Um they could have easily gotten to the Frozen Four. However, it, it, they took Michigan to the brink to the to the brink to overtime, losing to the Wolverines, which is never a fun thing. But it goes to show you they weren't playing great hockey at times this year. But they turned it on when it when it mattered most. They they made the most of it. They beat they walloped Michigan Tech, and then, you know, just fell by a goal to Michigan. They were leading in the third period, and then ended up losing in overtime. But kudos to them on a great season for for getting to the tournament and making the most of it, even though it didn't end up in a trip to the Frozen Four. Yeah, in the the win Friday night against Michigan Tech, eight zero, the largest shutout in NCAA tournament hockey history. So accomplishment for the program there. Uh, the Michigan game, I know Penn State loves to shoot, loves to get, shoot for rebounds. It just led to too many one and dones, and then it became a track meet with Michigan. Michigan really was bottling up the neutral zone, so Penn State wasn't able to get as big a high flying chances. It's Michigan was out chancing them left and right. I think either middle towards middle or end of the second period, Michigan had four minute, four, four and a half minutes of zone time, and Penn State had like a minute and 20. So, really a dominating game from Michigan. Penn State was lucky to be up 1 0. They got the, they got the goal of the power play. Um, I don't want to go there, but man, four power plays to one for Michigan. That's a tough pill to swallow. There was a, at the end of the second period, one of Michigan's players came was chirping at Penn State and just threw him an elbow in the jaw after the whistle. Period's over. Nothing comes of it. And like, I mean, that's borderline on sportsmanlike conduct at that point in time. Early third period, there's an interference. I mean, just one of Penn State players absolutely leveled in the left face-off dot. And uh, no call, no interference. The whole crowd just erupts in boos. And we can talk about officiating. And it played a part, but credit to Michigan. They've been top program all year long. They've been teetering in the number one, number two range um, in the Big Ten. And I think they're fifth, sixth, seventh overall nationally. Penn State was slightly behind them, you know, eighth, ninth, tenth all year long. So Michigan, probably a better team all year. That's what that's who, from an outside perspective, you want to see advance the team that's had a better year all year long. So credit to the Wolverines. It just stunk that. What fifty-eight seconds into overtime last last night, just the season ended on one shot. But hey, playoff hockey is the best best hockey, whether it's NCAA or the NHL, and we got a good one. Uh, we got two good games both all weekend long. So, congrats to the program. Hopefully, they'll be back next year, and maybe they get their program's first Frozen Four bid next year. Right, 
and that's the thing. Um, you know, who knows what's going to happen? But at the same time, now let's transition into uh, what I thought was humorous. Um, Michael Malley, I think you, you talk about Penn State greats. And we're going to talk about a little bit more about another Penn State great um, that ended up being legends for what they meant to the program and to the university during the darkest times is Michael Mowdy. Michael Mowdy went right after Jay Paterno on Twitter this week talking about, um, if you don't know, Jay Paterno is on the Board of Trustees. I think he, I, I have a lot of com comments and opinions about Jay Paterno. None of them are um, safe for work. So uh, I, I think... We're going to let that go for right now. But Jay Paterno tweeted um, about success with honor meeting every basketball NIL request. First of all, success with honor, as great as it is, isn't affiliated with the university. So say, say with that what you want. Now, that was talking about what they did to keep Michael Shrewsbury. Michael Maddie collapsed back. Response from dedicated alumni is a result of you fact and your number one. Sorry. Yes, fact number one. Sorry. Your cronies definition of meeting every basketball NAL request. How can you continue to spit this garbage? You continue to undermine the progress and efforts being made to genuinely align and unify PSU. PSU and alums and go PSU community deserve the best. We need all hands on deck, not a few guys brokering behind closed doors using words without deeds. Your input on this matter is toxic and your relevancy has expired. In this era of collegiate athletics, that is a former player of Paterno's talking mad shit on Jay, and he deserves every bit of it. Now, read Jay. fact number two. You got fact number two up. I got it. You you can take this one. So talking again, responding to the same tweet. Uh, fact number two. You voted against football on the board of trustees. Please remind me, why are you even in this conversation? We need alignment, not rhetoric about counter narratives. Go to Capitol Hill with that slander. Let those who intend on actually unifying PSU community advance so we can thrive. I mean, Michael Motti has got to be one of the first, like the Mount Rushmore of uh, legacy families of the Penn State football tree mm -hmm. in terms of families and in terms of players. Him and Jay Paterno did not get along while they were on the team together. Jay was obviously on the offensive side of the ball coaching. Monty was a defensive player and an absolute stud. Uh, and Jay there Paterno. weren't many people that got along with Jay. No, Jay he's... rode the coattails of his dad, undoubtedly, from State High to Penn State and back. I will say that before I go off on a tangent for another podcast where I just rip into Jay Paterno, but I, I don't want to do that today. Yeah, If you, did, if you didn't see it, we expressed we express um we gave you exposure on that. It's on NSN, NittanySportsNow.com if you want to read that. Um if you want to see the actual tweets, they're hyperlinked there. So now Maudie played a huge role in in maintaining the program. And so too did Christian Hackenberg. And Christian Hackenberg hopped on Adam and Adam Brenneman's podcast um last week. And if you have a chance, um that's next up with Adam Brenneman. It was an incredible podcast. It's it's a lengthy podcast, which is which is really good. But they talked about recruitment. They talked about being there for the scandal. They talked about his time in the NFL. They talked about his relationship with Bill O'Brien. And there were some there were a lot of funny stories about that. Him being late to a meeting, 
Um, Charlie Fisher calling him up, asking where he was. Um, a lot of expletives, but and then having to do dawn patrol for for a week <laughs> and having to play a game that weekend. Um, but it was great, and and he, it really was a vulnerable Christian Hackenberg, which Penn State has never been able to see. Right, this dude came to Penn State as as a young kid, eighteen, thrust in the spotlight to not only win football games but save that team from a shitstorm. Uh, and he held that recruitment class, recruiting class together. Brenneman did the same thing, and it's unfortunate the way that his career ended at Penn State. But Hackenberg played such a vital role. And then he was that bridge to James Franklin and that bridge, you know, he's that guy that, that stuck around and showed, you know, Trace McSorley what Penn state football was all about and how to win and, and really continue that success. And I don't think Krakenberg will ever get the credit that he deserves for that because the lot, you know, the last two years under Franklin just weren't that great. Right. Because they didn't have much of anything based on this, this sanctions that were going on. And, you know, they win the, the Croke Park Classic and they win the Pinstripe Bowl. And then they end up in that third year and he ends up, you know, getting hurt in that last game against the Tech Slayer Bowl, which was Trace McSorley's first game, uh, or first really a big-time appearance. And that was actually the first game that I ever covered for Penn State football against Georgia in the Tech Slayer Bowl. But I don't think he'll ever get the amount of credit he deserves because he goes on and goes to the NFL and it's just – uh, another shitstorm because the Jets were a tire fire and it's a guy that really wasn't able to be himself at Penn State and and then goes to the Jets where he is still not able to to be himself but it's a great podcast if you have a chance listen to it you can find it on YouTube um, but it's well worth every every minute of listening yeah like you said um, a great podcast really long one it's about 75 minutes uh, after you finish listening to our 35 minute ramble session of quality content feel free to head on over next up with adam brenneman um i don't want to spoil anything else in the episode but that clip that you referenced about uh hackenberg being late to practice was very humorous we got a question the chemistry of the team uh one of the teammates who christian was rooming with uh christian asked him to wake him up before the meeting and uh christian uh, snoozed his alarm but he actually turned it off and before the teammate left the dorm room did not make sure Hackenberg was vertical uh, out of bed. If you ever, ever task the waking somebody up, got to make sure they're vertical. Uh, make sure that no no chance of falling asleep. So, yeah, uh, credit to Christian. Like you said, not going to get the the recognition that he deserves. Those last two years under Franklin were brutal. Um, I feel bad because I feel like it kind of ruined his career. Not there's no real offensive line. I mean, McGovern was there at that time. He's in the NFL, but the rest of the offensive line as a whole probably definitely not to the standards that it was last year or what it's going to be this year. So I think he got I don't want to say scared, but when you got guys constantly falling at your feet, you gotta watch out for your knees, gotta watch out for your ankles. And if you don't feel confident setting your feet, you're not gonna be accurate and he was, I mean, he was overthrowing Jesse James by 10 feet at, you know, watching games from the student section during that time. It's just, yeah, I mean, the, the whole program as it exists today, post-sanctions, owes it all to him. So kind of unfortunate that he won't get that recognition. He did talk about, you know, potentially getting involved, coming back and stuff like that. But we'll see where it goes. And hopefully, I don't think time has been as friendly as it could be to him. 
I think, and maybe another five years, 10 years, especially if Franklin continues this role that he's on. It just seems like time is going to be very friendly to Hackenberg. Yeah, and that's the thing. You know, we forget that he was 18, 19, 20 years old. And I don't, I mean, we, we as adults, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, you know, we, yeah, there's so many things that change. And I think, you know, I think that growth is what he showed the most with some of the things that he said in that podcast. But we, we forget how young he really was when he's thrust into the spotlight. Your whole world changes when you're the face of a program, face of a university. And not a lot of people can take that. And and he mentioned golden retriever syndrome where you just want to please everybody, make everybody happy. And I thought that was so true, right? Because you just want to do everything for everybody. And, and you if you're a people pleaser, that's a really hard thing to to kind of get away from when everything's thrust upon you. And I think that's something that we take for granted um, because a lot of these players are not, not a lot of these players. All of these players are still human. Like, yes, do some love the spotlight more than others? Absolutely. But when you're a, a freshman putting out the stats that he was doing against a, for a, for a Penn state team mired in sanctions. Yeah, that was pretty damn impressive. Uh, and then that te- same team, Myron and Sanctions, you're on your your back, you're looking at the sky more than you're looking downfield. It's tough, and it, and it does hurt your confidence. And when you're 18, 19, 20 years old, that's not easy to deal with. Then you go to the NFL, and and you want and you need to go to a place that will cultivate you and and help you grow. And the last place he that should have ever drafted him outside of Houston, I think, probably was the Jets, and. Because the New York media is relentless, and he's the second round pick. And he mentioned him and Desha- or, um, Adam Brenneman mentioned Deshaun Kaiser saying that a second round pick is the worst pick for a quarterback. And I think this this rings very true because you're not, you know, you're not selected low enough where you're not going to matter. But they've already spent they spent some draft capital to draft you in the second round, meaning they've been thinking about you. So there's that pressure, right? And and to see how many actual quarterbacks have success out of that second round, you know, speaks volumes. Like if he goes to Philly or anywhere that's going to be able to have a place to teach him, uh, where the media probably isn't nearly as bad as New York, I think he's he might honestly still be in the league um, as a backup or even a starting quarterback. I, you know, we saw flashes of that that ability that in that first year, but at the end of the day, it just didn't happen. And, you know, fate is fate. And, and here we are talking about him on our podcast. Yeah. Like you said, second round is probably the worst place to go. You have near first round expectations and unlike first round quarterbacks, you don't get second chances. You don't get third chances. Some of those guys, I mean, what's Baker. I mean, Baker Mayfield shown flashes, but how many chances has he gotten? He's in Cleveland, Carolina, and now he's off to Tampa. Like or in the or in a stop in LA there too. So, mm-hmm. it's, if you're a second round guy, you don't get the chances of a of a first round guy. But the expectations are kind of there. And like you said, Houston, Chicago, uh, not great place. New York Jets, not great places to uh, cultivate talent. Cleveland Browns. I mean, those are probably like the four worst teams that he could go to, and he went. He ended up going to one of them. So, yeah, and it's tough. And you hope for the hope the best for him. He's coaching with Bill Belton. In New Jersey, coaching high school football, which is which is kind of fun. Um, so yeah, it, it's nice to see that he's landed on his feet. Things are going well for him, you know, now that he's done playing. But that's about all we've got for this week. 
We thank you as always for listening. We'll talk to you again next week on the Lashing Out Podcast and the Sports Now Network. For Kevin, this has been Jared. Thank you as always for listening. Thank you.